following message is presented by Community Gospel Church in Bremen, Indiana. It is our great privilege to share this ministry with you. We in no way intend for this to be a replacement for the local church. It is our prayer that this would serve as a resource to help make Jesus Christ known in our congregation and other congregations gathering across the world. For more information about Community Gospel Church, visit www.communitygospelchurch.com. All right, here we go. (laughs) If you would, uh, open up your Bibles. Right-hand side of your Bible is a book uh, called 1 Corinthians. We are in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Uh, Big numbers are going to be the chapter, and smaller numbers are going to be the verses. So 1 Corinthians chapter 11 is where we are going to be at this morning. And um, yeah, 100%, we're talking about head coverings and hair length today. And you're probably thinking to yourself, um, wow, this is the sermon I've been waiting for my whole entire life. I'm so glad I came to Community Gospel Church this morning. If you're new here, uh, you're probably wondering how we got to this passage of Scripture. And um, in the month of July, we always kind of have, um, for lack of a better word, like a smorgasbord of, of messages. And uh, this four or five weeks, excuse me, five weeks that we're in right now is called the Taste of the New Testament. So everybody's bringing kind of a little bit of um, their favorite New Testament passage. And uh, since it's a five-Sunday month, I'm preaching in the middle of that. And uh, I, I Googled passages that pastors don't preach on. And this was number one. And I thought, I'm in. Like, let's do it. Why not? Um, Let's see what happens. So it took two weeks to prepare for it. um, And then it's going to take two weeks to recover from it. (laughs) But, uh, you know, you look at this and you think to yourself, these things might seem outdated or irrelevant. Uh, But the truth is, this really holds a, a very important spiritual significance for believers today. I think it will speak to us more than we think it does. And it will reveal some truths about who God is, um, uh, order of authority, roles in the church, worship, both corporate and individual. And it's it's a really good passage of Scripture. I don't think it's as complex as people make it out to be. I think it's it's very simple, straightforward, and to the point. Uh, So before you start reaching for hats and scissors and all that other stuff, (laughs) let's uh, summarize what's going on in Corinthians. Because some of you know and some of you don't have an understanding of the books of the Bible. So let's talk about 1 Corinthians first. 1 Corinthians is a letter. It's addressed to the church in Corinth by a man named Paul. Paul used to be Saul. He persecuted the church and came to meet the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus and goes from persecuting Jesus to populating Christ's church. And so Paul and Saul is an interchangeable name, uh, whether um, it, it's Greek or Hebrew to the person that he's ministering to. He didn't necessarily just change his name permanently like some people think. But he wrote this letter in Greece. We learn that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. He writes about 50 years after Jesus' death, and he addresses some things that are going on in the Corinthian church. Now, there's some divisions going on. There's some conflicts going on. There's some things that are happening in society that Paul looks at, and he's like, this is a problem, and you need some help. 
So let's just look at a couple of these issues, and you can run kind of a personal checklist in your head, and you can see if the church still struggles with these things. Sexual immorality. Lawsuits among believers. Disagreements about how to use spiritual gifts. What is a man? What is a woman? What is a child? Things like that. So we're on the same page, like still applicable for today. So the letter to 1 Corinthians is still just as important as it was back then. It also offers a couple of insights on how early believers navigated their faith in a world that was diverse and hostile towards the faith. It highlights the importance of being united in the gospel of Jesus Christ, even if you have differences or disagreements. There's rich theological teaching in 1 Corinthians on who God is, the role of the church. And Paul is encouraging these Corinthian believers, I want you to live out your faith in a very practical way. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not just for eternity, it is for today. We don't just accept Jesus so that we can go to heaven. We accept Jesus because he's our help here on earth as well. So 1 Corinthians shows us that despite our differences and struggles, we're one body through faith in Christ, and we are called to seek the other person's best. That's the definition of love. What is true love? True love is seeking the other person's best because that's what God did for us in John three sixteen by sending his one and only son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting, eternal life. So here we get in Corinthians, and we look at chapter 11, or yeah, chapter 11, and we see two principles for conduct when the church gathers together. So back then, church was gathering, all the believers together, still happens today. So we're still on the same page here. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2. Paul writes, Now I commend you because you remembered me in everything. And you maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. Well, we have to stop right there for just a second. And Paul, before he kind of drops the hammer, he gives them what they're doing well. So before you give bad news, you got to give good news, right? He says that they passed or practiced the passed down traditions well. Well, we just kind of jumped into a section of scripture. So chapter 11 is part of a larger section of various issues that Paul has addressed. In the Bible, when we study the Bible, verse goes to chapter, chapter goes to book, book goes to genre. In other words, like letters or gospel accounts or history in the Old Testament, Genre goes to Testament, Old Testament, and New Testament, and then those Testaments go to the whole entire Bible. So that's how you study Scripture properly. You have to keep it in what we call context. And in context, chapter 11 is part of this larger section where there's issues that Paul is talking about. And he's talking about what transpires in the corporate worship gathering, the meetings that they have together. And he starts by praising them in the ESV, the English Standard Version of the Bible. He says, I commend you. And if you want to circle that, that means I praise you. I approve of some of the things that you are doing as a church. You're holding to the traditions passed down. Well, I would ask, what traditions? Paul's referring to things like how they solve 
divisions among believers when they're together. How they use spiritual gifts to edify one another. How they served in their sports camp. I don't think they had sports camp back then. And the conduct during the Lord's Supper. Paul talks a lot about what transpires in the Lord's Supper when they take the elements of the Lord's Supper, the, the bread and the cup, and they use those in a proper way. Now, passing down traditions can be good. As a matter of fact, just this past week, my youngest daughter, Gianna, was with my mom, and they were making cinnamon rolls together. And the cinnamon roll recipe was passed down from generation to generation to generation, and my mom was so excited. And so was I when they got home, because they were delicious. But think of these family recipes that are passed down from generation to generation, allowing that person to not only enjoy delicious food, but as my daughter talked to my mom, they talked about how her mom gave it to her and her mom gave it to her. And the same is true in the church. And so here are a few examples of how we maintain the traditions of the church that's on the screen. Number one, we still gather today. Corporate worship needs to be prioritized for us. This is important. We come every single week on Sunday because going way back, we realized that the early believers gathered on Sunday as a celebration of the fact that our God's not dead. He is alive. And so we celebrate that every single Sunday. They got together and they confessed their sins to one another. We're going to try that after church today. We're just going to bring you up one by one and you're going to say your biggest sin. I won't be here, but I'm sure it'll be fantastic. (laughs) They got together and sang. As a matter of fact, 300 times in the Bible, you are commanded to sing. Some of us make a joyful noise. Some of us stay on key. But we're all commanded to sing, being doctrinally sound. We don't sing songs that just make us feel good. We oftentimes don't sing songs that are on the radio because they're not doctrinally sound. We don't just sing hymns, we sing spiritual songs. We sing all doctrinally sound music that ties back to the truths in Scripture. Where did we get that from? They used to do that back in the day. We still do that today. We remember communion or the Lord's Supper on the first Sunday and the fifth Sunday. Every single month, we look at this symbol of Christ's passion. We baptize people as a symbol of the fact that we have faith in Jesus Christ. So Paul is praising the Corinthians. He's saying, you guys do these things well. Now, if you look really close in the passage, you will find that these are not Paul's traditions. They're not what Paul wants them to do. He passed them down as he received them from the Lord. How do you know that? Well, keep the passage in context. Look at chapter 11, verse 1. It says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Paul constantly points people back to Jesus. Paul looks at it and he says, these are from the Lord. These honor the Lord. And then he gets into verse 3. And in verse 3 he says, but I want you to understand. Now parents, you know what that's like, right? You talk to your kids like that. I love you, you're doing a good job, but I need you to understand one thing. I want you to understand That the head of every man is Christ, and the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is the church. Just what Sean prayed for us here just a second ago. To fully understand this section, we're going to break it down into three parts. 
The first part is going to be headship. Second part is going to be man's submission. And third part is going to be woman's submission. And then we're going to give reasons. So let's start first with verse 3, headship. Greek, head, the word Greek, and why do we talk about Greek words is because the Bible was originally written in Greek, so it's good for you to have a word study. Refers to, first and foremost, your physical head, or it's used as a metaphor referring to a leader or authority. So in your workplaces, you probably have a boss or somebody who is over you, that is your head. It expresses two things here in regards to authority. It expresses, first of all, subordination, which means there's a structure. There's a hierarchical structure, and two, orientation, which is a starting point. So we ask, where does Paul get this from? Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3. This is creation. He's not saying that one person is better than another. He's talking about order, that which was from the beginning. And Paul says that the head, which is the authority of every man, adult males, is Jesus Christ, our Messiah. And then he continues, and he said, every woman is the male, or every woman's head is the male or husband, and in context, Paul is talking about marriage here. (laughs) So I would ask, what about unmarried women? What do you do with them? Well, unmarried women would fall underneath the authority of their parents, specifically their father. Okay? Every person is subordinate. Even Christ, Paul says, is subordinate to God the Father while he was here on earth. That's Philippians chapter 2. Without submission, there's no salvation. Christ to God the Father and man to Jesus the Son. Different roles are not a bad thing. They're a God thing. And when we have a God thing, we have a great thing. Different roles are not a bad thing. They're a God thing, and it was from creation, and anything that is from God is a great thing. So headship is talking about order. Then he says, let's look at verse 4. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. What does that mean? Well, a man who covered his head when he prayed made a public prayer or prophesied. And the word prophesied means that he just spoke in a corporate worship gathering. Remember, keep this in context. We're talking about corporate worship services. A man would get up and he would speak in a corporate worship service. And it says, Paul's saying is, you dishonor your authority, which is Jesus, when you pray with your head covered. In the third century, men would put what is called a kippah, which is a prayer shawl that had tassels on the end of each corner, and there was these fringe knots that represented 613 commands in the Old Testament. Those 613 commands were all about what God taught and what God wanted us to do or not to do. And what these men would do is they would get up in the service and they would put this veil over their head and they would pray. The practice came because these guys were reading from Exodus chapter 34, where Moses comes down the mountain after receiving God's commandment, and he put a veil over his face because he shined. And they said, I'm going to shine too much, so I'm going to cover up my head. Now, here's the crazy thing about Scripture. What people missed is Moses did not cover his head to honor God's glory. He covered his face because his shine was fading away and he didn't want people to see it. 
That's addressed in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. If you think that's my opinion, that's not my opinion. That's what Paul tells the Corinthians in the next letter. Because I'm sure they had questions about that. So for a man to pray with his head covered dishonored Christ because essentially he was being prideful. It was taking, he says, Christ has taken away the veil. You remember when Jesus dies on the cross? Remember the veil is split in two? You go from the holy place to the most holy place. You got a relationship with God. You don't have to have a veil anymore. When the bride comes down the aisle, or at least she used to with the veil, the husband lifted up the veil and he could see his bride clearly. That's exactly what Paul's saying. He's saying, take off the prayer shawl. And then he goes into verse five because women are like, what about us? What do we do? Well, he's got you covered there too. He says, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head since it is the shame of her head. It is the same as if her head was shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut her hair short or shave her head, let her cover her head. Okay, so we got some beauticians out in the um, foyer today. I'm just kidding. We got to keep it somewhat light while we stay relevant, all right? In New Testament days, a good married woman wore a head covering in public. And we would say, why? Why would she do that? Why would, why would a, a, a good woman do this? Well, essentially, she would say that I only want my husband to see my face. I only want my husband to see this. But prostitutes in the New Testament would not wear head coverings to essentially, as one commentator put it, show off the goods. The Corinthians had prostitutes because of a pagan temple from Aphrodite. And so a good woman wore a veil declaring that she would only expose herself to her husband. To not wear a head covering was as bad as shaving her head or having short hair because shaving one's head was a sign of disgrace and humiliation done to indicate being unclean or sinful. So a woman who prayed or spoke freely without her head covered, having cutting her hair or shaving her head was essentially saying by her actions, I am not underneath your authority here. Church, this is the feminist movement starting in Rome. That's exactly what is happening. And so what Paul's saying is, he's saying, women, you are free to pray or speak in church. Jessica just did. But you're not allowed to preach. Because that is reserved for a man because there's a lot of symbolism going on there. Headship and his submission to Christ. But you women are free to pray or speak in the assembly only when you demonstrate you're underneath the authority of male leadership of the church. That's not our opinion as human beings. That's God's word. So we don't argue that because it's God's word. And I would look at Paul and I'd say, you got a reason for that? He's like, yeah, absolutely. Look at verse 7. He says, for a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and the glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. And for man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither, verse 7, was man's created for woman, but woman for a man. This wasn't given because God is cruel. What Paul's saying here is it just simply follows created order. 
A man wasn't to have his head covered because he is in the image, you can underline that, and glory of God. In other words, what he's saying is Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 is true. Man is created first. He's not better. He's not greater. He was just first. And a woman or a wife was created after man, meaning she gets her glory, her image from man, and she compliments the man. Notice this, ladies. You are not taken from a male's head to show that you're greater than him. You are not taken from his foot to show that you are less than him. You are taken from one of the most precious parts of the body. You're taken from the middle. And so here what Paul says is, he says a true godly man knows his wife is God's glory cut from him. Husbands, how many times do we wake up in the morning and look at our wives and say, you are the glory of God. You radiate God's glory because of the created order. So for a married woman to abandon her complementary role, she would abandon her glory. So an uncovered woman's head is a symbolic expression to her rebellious spirit to both man and God. That's what Paul's saying. Now look at verse 10. This is really interesting. He kind of like picks up a little bit. He says, that is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Oh, we're bringing in the angels. Well, why are the angels here? This is a huge debated topic. Everybody has an opinion on it. There's a couple of thoughts here. Number one, one big thought is, a passage in Genesis says, the sons of God looked and saw the daughters of men that they were fair. That's Genesis chapter six, verse two. New Testament rabbis said angels saw women's long hair and it tempted them to fall. Is that crazy? If that's true, women, you are tempting angels with your luscious long hair. I don't think it's necessarily true. Number two, another big thought is, Isaiah, the prophet in the Old Testament, received a vision of God's glory where the angels were present worshiping God. And it says in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 2, they covered their faces as an act of submission to God, which should be that way among Corinthian women. Or I like the third thought. Paul says that when you corporately worship, let's keep the passage in context, we're worshiping together, we're in the gathering. Angels are present and they're watching and they're studying us. That's biblical. The angels in Hebrews, it says, look at us. They long to have a relationship that we have with the living God. So you might come to church and say, I don't care about pleasing anybody else. Well, you're off. Because you should. You should care about your brother and sister in Christ, but you should also care about the fact that the angelic realm is watching our corporate worship. Whoa. Maybe we should realize that the heavenly audience is present and long to have a proper relationship with God the way that we have. And if you want to research that a little bit more, that's Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22. All right, Jordan, so make some application. Okay, I will. Verse 11. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. That's a good verse. Verse 12. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. What Paul's doing is essentially going backwards with what he just went forwards through, created order. So the first thing is, 
We're interdependent in the Lord, men and women. Men and women are mutually interdependent. They complement each other to bring glory to God. Husbands, you complement your wife. Wife, you complement your husband. You're not in competition with each other. You complete one another. That's why you have marriage problems, because you're competing with each other. In Christ, we don't think of ourselves as superior to the other sex. We would never say that. A woman's subordination does not mean inferiority. Man is not superior in his being to woman. It started with Eve coming from Adam, and then from there on out, humanity, men and women come from women, which demonstrates how all things, verse 12, are from God. This is the created order. You can't argue that, by the way. Man is a man, woman is a woman, children come from woman, period. There's no debate. I don't know why we're talking about this in our world. There's, there's no, it's just, uh, moving on. Verse 13. Judge for yourselves, is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head covered? So Paul's basically putting it back in their laps. He's saying, you tell me. Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? Uh-oh, now we're going to talk about guys with long hair. Oh, no. If you go into the long-haired argument, you missed the meaning of the passage because the meaning of the passage says that nature testifies to this interdependence. In almost every culture, let me just walk something through with you. Men have shorter hair than women do. Like if we were to take a poll, majority of our congregation, guys, you're balding, women, you're flourishing. (laughs) Somebody said in a sermon I listened to this past week, he said, men age like milk, women age like wine, figure it out. And I amend it. I was like, that's kind of true. And women say amen. Nature testifies to this. For the most part, women have more hair than men. Men's testosterone causes them to lose hair quicker, while women's estrogen helps them to grow hair longer. That's just a fact. That's how God created you. And so what Paul's saying is, he's saying the Bible doesn't say it's a sin for a man to have long hair. But it does say that a woman's long hair is her glory, a visible expression to difference of the sexes. It's a sign of beauty and femininity seen as an important part of their identity, a source of pride or honor. And if you talk to any woman who has gone through any sort of medical condition that has caused her to lose her hair, you will see the damaging, devastating effects of losing that glory. I would also go as far to say as some people cut their hair as an act of rebellion against what God's word says. We see that in all of our culture. It transpires all over the place. Somebody's hair is a visible expression to the difference of sex as a sign of beauty, femininity, seen as an important part of their identity. I don't think it's wrong, ladies. Now, this, this is really hard for me to say, but it's true. I don't think it's wrong sometimes that you work on your hair. I I think it's a godly thing. This is your head covering. This is what God has given to you because the estrogen in your body to cover your head. This adorns you. I think it's a good thing. It, long hair, Paul says in verse 14, is given to you as a covering for a reason. It's God-given. Now, I don't know how you guys feel about your ladies going to the beautician this week, but... Ladies, 13 and 14, highlight that. Put it on the bathroom mirror. Verse 16. 
But if a woman, verse 15, has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her as a covering. Verse 16, if anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Paul is saying, very shortly, he's saying, don't fight interdependence. Paul says, if anybody wants to argue about this or be contentious about this regarding hair and head coverings, stop it. You're being divisive in the church of God. It was like food that was sacrificed to idols in chapter 8. The Corinthian believers in us were to pursue needs of others over their own as God's glory was at stake. Chapter 10, verse 31. So whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, you do it all for the glory of God, not for own personal selfish motives. You do it because God's glory is at stake. So Paul, what would you say to us if you were in our culture today? He would say, we don't have rules on how we should dress for corporate worship. We don't have rules for that. It's always funny to me. People are like, we should wear suits and ties to church. I'm like, yeah, because they did that back in the early church. That's, That's not how that works. He should say, you should be modest, men and women. You should be careful about drawing attention to yourself. That testifies to whether or not you are interdependent. So the first thing he would say is modesty wins all the time. The second thing he would say is dress in a way that doesn't draw attention to yourself, which I already said. And third, he would say, focus on the status of your heart more than your flesh. That's 1 Samuel 16, 7, by the way. For God does not see the same way that people see. The Lord looks at your heart. And women, where do you come from? This part. I don't think that's a coincidence. Paul has words here for both men and women. Paul wrote two other letters. Well, he wrote a lot of letters, but two other come to mind. Colossians chapter 3 reminds us, in everything we do things unto the Lord with sincerity of heart and desire to please him. Philippians says we are commanded to consider others more important than ourselves and look out for their best. So the prayer here is that we would do these things in corporate worship inside when we're gathered here together, be mindful of one another, but also that we would do this outside too as well. Because of the gospel that we have received, we build up the body of Christ in love because Jesus is coming back again soon. Now, many of you read the email uh, that I sent out a couple weeks ago, but Bethany and I had the opportunity to go to the one conference this year. It was in California. It was the gathering of the free church. And as we were there, we had the opportunity to hear from our president. His name is Kevin. I'm not going to give you his last name because I always butcher it and I say it wrong. And if he hears me, he'll be mad at me. But Kevin had something really interesting to say. He brought up with him after he preached a sermon, and I have the document here. We've also sent it out. But essentially what it is, is is where we stand in regards to the Evangelical Free Church. It's denials and affirmations. He gave an introduction, and then he talks about things like social justice and being quote-unquote woke. And what our stance is on that. Where we're standing right now in current culture. Are we standing on the word of God or are we standing on our own opinions? And I think what he said a couple of weeks ago sums up this passage well. And we'll close this morning with this. We do not believe that a person's biological sex should be separated from their self-perception as a man or a woman, nor that the body should be altered when it does not conform to that self-perception. But we do believe that some people experience 
a distressing struggle between these two. And then we must treat those who struggle in this way with love and compassion as we seek to help them with the truth and the power of the gospel toward the wholeness of a biologically sexed identity grounded in God's very good design in creation as male and female. We are not egalitarian, which essentially means we do not believe that all people are equal. We are complementary in understanding the roles and function of men and women in the church. We do believe that the gifts and ministries of women are essential to the health and the fruitfulness of churches and ought to be sought out and multiplied in ways that arise from and are consistent with our complementarian convictions as reflected in our policies. We do not believe in the annihilation of those who die apart from Christ, but in their eternal conscious punishment. Among the kinds of suffering we ought to seek to alleviate, this is the most grievous, and it is our urgent duty and God-given privilege to seek to alleviate it by proclaiming the gospel and calling all people to believe the gospel by repenting and receiving the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, your word testifies and speaks into culture like a piercing arrow. Your word says that it goes past our skin and it hits our bone into the marrow. And your word is truth. It has stood the test of time. It will continue to stand the test of time. God, we thank you first and foremost that you are the creator of every good and perfect thing. That you have created this world and that you have created man in your image. And you have given us the opportunity to reflect your glory in all we think, say, and do. Help us to realize that it's your word, your will, and your ways. And our job is to conform to that. Yes, we can ask questions. Yes, we can ponder. Yes, we can converse. But it always has to come down to your word, which is the anvil, on which all opinions are smashed. So if you're here this morning, you don't have a relationship with God through faith in Christ, your first step is to say to the Lord, God, I know I'm a sinner. And I believe Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sin. That that blood that was shed covers a multitude of sin, past, present, and future. I desire to live like Christ. If you're here today and you know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, your prayer is to first and foremost say, God, I am dependent upon you. Lord, we as a congregation are dependent upon you. We can do nothing outside of our relationship with you. We're so grateful that nature testifies to this truth. And we would ask God that you would help us not to fight that. Realize that we are a complement to one another. That we are a companion to one another. And help us not to be in competition, but to seek completion. I love your word. It speaks so real, 
so fast, so true. It is exactly what we need in our society. So help us, God, to take these truths to the ends of the earth as we make your son Jesus known both near and far. And all God's people said, amen. Thank you for listening to the Community Gospel Church podcast. If you would like to support this ministry financially, simply log on to communitygospelchurch.com and click the Contribute tab.